0: Welcome to the uh, next talk in the Breakfast with Jesus series, where we're looking at Jeremiah. In the last talk, I focused on the uh, infamous verse of Jeremiah, seventeen verse nine, which is uh, often taken as a proof text of original original sin. That is Jeremiah, seventeen verse nine. The heart is desperately sick, um, and who can know it? And I, I segued from that into a broader issue, which is how we should read a book like Jeremiah, indeed the whole of the Old Testament. And I offered some, some lenses that I think expand our um, understanding and also prevent us from slipping into a retrospective uh, force-fitting of our paradigms back onto the text. And in this particular case, uh, the paradigm that's retrofitted was um, the paradigm of original sin, uh, where Jeremiah 17 verse 9 was almost seen as a um, proof text for Romans 3. So that was, uh, and the three paradigms that I introduced as ways to balance this were first of all, historical to try and put ourselves back and position um, the prophetic text in the flow of history. Uh, the second um, was a uh, literary approach. Uh, in other words, looking at closely at the text, closely at things like imagery, um, arrangement and flow, not just taking a verse on its own, but positioning it within the flow of the surrounding text. Um, Looking at things like contrast and so on, um, and that's that's pretty important there. And then the third one, which was somewhat of an expansion of the rhetorical, sorry, of the, of the literary method, was was rhetoric, um, which is taking viewing the text as a discourse, um, a discourse, not as a manual, um, not as Um, clinical propositions, but as a discourse between somebody speaking to an audience. Um, I alluded to a fourth reading, uh, which is allegorical, and that's what I want to talk about in this talk. Now, the allegorical reading of scripture was uh, very much an approach taken by the patristics. Uh, It's an approach, however, that has got a lot of bad press in the evangelical world in the Protestant and reformed world um, and it's it's uh, feared and criticized as a fanciful reading of scripture um, and a reading of scripture that um, neglects the you know, historical groundedness of the scripture uh, today um, generally speaking, um, my reading of Uh, the way scripture is interpreted, there's been a significant move to, let's call it a propositional approach to reading scripture, uh, where there's a, and and that does offer um, some benefits, but the danger is the message, the theme seems to be, the, the assumption is it's cemented in the text, and the intention that we're discussing and looking at purely is the author's intention. Um, and it gets very forensic uh, reading this kind of um, commentary and interpretation. Uh, obviously, although this is does offer some real truth, um, you know, I would certainly say that we can't stop there. Um, uh, because if we did, we would really just be treating the text like any ancient text and and uh, with with no with no divine authorship. Now, evangelical, evangelical, and Protestant readings don't stay there. I mean, they allow for some supernatural aspects of the Old Testament, particularly things that are seen as messianic prophecies. Um, so there's, um, you know, sneaking through the propositional, um, the propositional layers there there's allowed to be some kind of supernatural predictions of the Messiah. Um, Of course, there's an element of truth in that, but the patristics took that a lot further. Um, So what I want to do in this talk is just open up that world of allegory, a world that we could also call a a world of metaphor and imagery. Um, Open that up a bit more. I want to defend it. Uh, I want to make some clarifying points about it and and then return and finish by saying, well, what if we tried to apply, apply this kind of patristic allegorical reading to Jeremiah 17? Um, and by the time I get to the end of the talk, you'll understand why the word allegorical is inadequate. So a few points to start with that are uh, I think illuminating about the patristics um, the first thing is they clearly began with a worldview of reading so so they they had a a theory of rhetoric and communication um, and in particular of reading scripture where and they were trained in rhetoric much more than we are the ultimate communication the ultimate rhetoric was not between the local author and the local audience although they admitted that was important it was between God revealing himself and us whoever us is reading it so they took it up a level Uh, and so their worldview was that God is in the business of unfolding and revealing himself Um, and therefore that all creation including history is a kind of book of God Um, no no text is autonomous no text is independent there's no unit of creation that is independent of God. So, so what this means for them is that the fund of metaphorical subjects is limitless, um, and, and, and nowhere is that fund independent of God and the possibility of God. Um, and secondly, building on that, they then saw that Scripture was ultimately inspired and written by the Spirit not just by the local human author. So in asking, who is the author of Jeremiah? Who is the author of Jeremiah? The ultimate author is the Spirit of God. So really they, they just had, let's, let's say, probably a more pervasive picture of inspiration. Um, and at, at the level of this spiritual authorship, very importantly, what's the argument? What's the revelation? What's the... What's the author talking about? What's the Spirit talking about? And their answer was um, epic, and that it's all cohered by its central drama and its central character, which is the revelation of the Godhead in Christ. They expected to see that everywhere. Uh, because as Ephesians 1 and the patristics in defending their views were very articulate about using the New Testament to defend it. Um, Ephesians 1 verse 10, that Christ is the ultimate mystery of God and all things cohere in him. So a way of putting it is that they saw the drama of all scripture, that the sort of the plot structure behind all scripture is the incarnation or the pre-incarnation. Now, importantly, they then saw this as a very living transaction. So the scripture was not an archive. It was not a, a dead text from the past. They saw that God's project is us, whoever us is, the audience. And what we're doing is we are making meaning. We are having the veil lifted from our eyes. Um, so, rather than viewing the text as we tend to in a modernist way, view it as a sort of frozen, objectified set of you know data points, the text is a sign. It's a message of the revelation of the divine to us. So, so they had this very expansive worldview of communication. Now, secondly, and I've already implied the second point, they they had they moved to a very high christology high view of who jesus was who he was um, in his local manifestation 33 years who he was in his resurrection which was breaking out of time and space into eternity who he was transcendently in creation they saw jesus as the architect of creation and as the end of creation so because of that they saw all all of creation and indeed all of humanity as incarnational to some extent really they were doing nothing more than taking seriously the repeated uh, claim and declaration of the new testament that about christ that in him and through him and for him are all things uh, so all of creation and all of humanity will be summed up in Christ at the end of all things that was their, that was their view um, so therefore they, they, they don't just view scripture as seeing a few isolated predictions you know here and there um like random letters in a bottle at pop up isaiah 53 for instance they, they, they don 't see them um, merely, but instead what they see is the entire narrative uh, of scripture and creation. They saw that as all pregnant with meaning and pregnant with possibility and that idea of I suppose the pregnancy of all of creation and the pregnancy of our experience and the pregnancy of the narrative is, is, is probably the best way to metaphorically explain their expectation that they could see inside almost anything a picture of Christ if we looked hard enough. Uh, and I suppose if I were to continue the pregnancy metaphor, our job is to give it birth. Um, they, they 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 saw this pregnancy as a universal yearning towards the consummation of all things which will which will be summed up in Christ, and all creation and all humanity is shaped after and through the logos of Christ now once you have that worldview and you return to the idea of allegory, really that's a very bad word to describe what they were doing so it really it's not allegory. It's not as if they were um, naive uh, ancients um, who lacked our uh, wisdom and lacked our epistemology and lacked our sophistication, and they were back in a land of you know myth. Um, no, 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 not at all. Um, what, they were, what they had was a Christological allegory, so that would be a better way, or Christocentric allegory, where they saw Christ in Aristotelian terms as the formal and final cause of all reality, end of all things and shape of all things. Um, And so what we consider reality, what we consider normal needs to be unveiled to reveal its true form and its end game. Within that, if you then go back to well, let's go back to metaphor or allegory. Allegory is really a sophisticated, extended metaphor. Um, how does metaphor work? Um, I won't go. I won't go fully into this. I'll just look at the at the mechanics of the of the tool. The first thing to know about metaphor is its fundamentally a stretching device, cognitively. That, that's its goal. Its goal is to, is, is to stretch our understanding, to amplify our understanding, and not just amplify it, but transform it. So metaphor has always been seen as the um, engine of invention in the human mind. Hence, it was called a trope a trope, T-R-O-P-E, which is the Greek word for a turning. So it was a turning of our mind. So when we do read, for instance, texts uh, from the New Testament about having our minds being transformed, um, a very adequate translation or conception of that is having our minds turned. And if you say, well, how, how, how are our minds going to be turned? Well, metaphor is probably going to be one of the tools, um, if not the main tool that might do that. And the second point is that we, we often use metaphors generally we use them of something that seems to defy an easy understanding. Jesus for instance all of his parables can be viewed as forms of metaphor or allegory. Um, you know, Frankly to call Jesus's parables allegories would be quite accurate so it's a bit rich criticising the patristics for something Jesus used really as his um, stock in trade. But We tend to use metaphor when we're trying to explain something that's really tough to get our heads around. And in the case of Jesus, the common metaphor, one of some of the great ones, are the kingdom of God. Let me give you a different example. Years ago, I, as a young consultant, was writing a manual for a client on the cardiovascular system and particularly on defibrillators. And um, defibrillation is an electrical, fibrillation is an electrical malfunction of the heart and defibrillation is an electrical intervention. And uh, in in order to explain how this was working, I had to get down into the cell structure of the the heart and um, explaining how electrical waves flow across the heart, cell by cell. Uh, One of the critical concepts that came up there was this phrase, which was transmembrane action potential. Now, um, by the way, that's a a noun string, in other words, uh, three nouns um, sort of locked together, which is the way uh, most professions talk um and it's a bit incomprehensible but i certainly didn't understand it i mean i i you know i gave up science in year 10 i'm writing out this word um, transmembrane action potential uh wondering what on earth it's going to mean uh if there's a bit of a background noise it's just i'm in my living room and the uh um the waste truck is picking up <laughs> waste from outside it'll pass don't worry um, so I, in order to understand it, had to get people to explain it to me, and then I took a metaphor to explain it. The metaphor that I took was somebody uh, jumping up and down on a springboard, you know, into a swimming pool. we all we all know exactly what that is. Pretty familiar. You know, we jump up and down, and and as you jump up and down, the springboard gets, you know, more and more depressed, more and more depressed, more and more depressed. And the lower it goes, we all know, the higher it's going to push you. So if we froze uh, um, that person at the bottom of that depression, if we froze them there at a moment in time, we know actually at that moment there is enormous potential, or energy, or action at that moment. So I talked about that as a metaphor to describe this uh, stored electrical energy that was in potentiality, not actuality, and that actually works in oscillating flows across the membrane of the cell wall. Really, really powerful, really good way to describe it. Now, there are three parts to that description. The first part's the familiar world. So there's something really unfamiliar, which is called transmembrane action potential. Um, In order to explain it, I'm going to compare it. I'm going to take take a familiar thing and compare an unfamiliar thing. So the unfamiliar thing is transmembrane action potential. The, The familiar thing is I'm going to compare it to something we've all seen, and it's generally an image And I'm gonna say in some way, these are connected. Now, importantly, I'm not saying they're mirrors of each other, I'm not saying they're equal, I'm saying they are like each other. And importantly, the third part of metaphor is solving the puzzle. And where metaphor is empowering for a good communicator, that third part is left to the audience. Jesus did this all the time. He didn't explain the parables. He said, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a person who found a pearl. I went and sold everything he had for that pearl. So he's comparing two things, something familiar. We all know what it's like, seeing beautiful, something beautiful, gotta have it, go, let's go buy it. Whole range of familiar connotations there. Something that's oh, a bit strange, a bit difficult, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Put the two together now we the audience and the audience has been doing this for 2000 years well, what on earth could that mean and it's very generative uh, because really that third way is not a closed shop the fact that uh different people and even us at different times in our life will see different things in it there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever it's very generative very generative and by the way um if you've got a modernist closed approach of reality, you think, oh, that's a problem because it's all subjective and you know, three meanings could conflict with each other. Um, the epistemology of the patristics was that God was like an infinite ocean and our apprehension of God will keep on growing. There's no stopping to it. Um, so finding out those hidden generative likenesses is really, really important. So that's how metaphor works and allegories work. Now, if the revealed meaning is the hidden Christ, obviously it's very uh, generative uh, if we use metaphors. Uh, there's only there's only one um, extension I'd like to make of this discussion of explanation of metaphor, which I've I thought about, I think, since I was a kid. Uh, I haven't sort of fully worked it out. But if I use a metaphor, um, I say, for instance, my love is like a red, red rose. Famous line of poetry. I've got my love. I'm comparing it to a red, red rose. That's pretty powerful. The difference between that and God saying, if God said my love is like a red, red rose, he doesn't. But he does say his love is like other metaphorical things. The difference is God created the rose. I didn't create the rose. In fact, God created everything. And if God created everything, then there's something much more intrinsic and connected in the fund of imagery than if I than there would be if I used it. Um, which would say, if anything, at the hands of the Holy Spirit, a metaphor, metaphorical reading should be taken more seriously, not, not less seriously. So, the... Um, the patristics in 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 handling allegory um, had, had a really high view of it and a very Christological view. Um, I, I, can't, I, I can't help but just finish off with this. I'm not finishing off, but I've just got to read you a little bit of Gregory of Nyssa on his life of Moses. Um, and by the way, the way, he, he, so he takes the life of Moses as a metaphor of uh, the walk of faith from which we can learn. Uh, And and at the beginning of it, he says this beautiful uh, little explanation, just as at sea, those who are carried away from the direction of the harbour bring themselves back on course by a clear sign upon seeing either a beacon light raised up high or some mountain peak coming into view. In the same way, scripture by the example of Abraham and Sarah may guide again to the harbor of the divine will those adrift on the sea of life with a pilotless mind. What magnificent prose and what a magnificent picture that we're on the sea of life tossed to and fro with pilotless minds. In other words, we can't self-pilot. And then we see up on the headland, a lighthouse, a beacon of light that can begin to guide us back into the harbour of the divine will. Um, And what is that beacon of light? It's allegories from scripture. In this case, he's using the example of Abraham and of of Sarah. And... um, He goes further in this same passage, which is introductory to his work and says, well, some people are going to say, well, hang on, how can I imitate um, people in Scripture? I'm not a Chaldean, as I remember Abraham was, nor was I nourished by the daughter of an Egyptian, as Scripture tells us about Moses. So he's saying, well, how can I learn if I'm not in their circumstance and in their situation? How shall I place myself in the same rank with one of them when I don't know how to imitate anyone so far removed from me by the circumstances of his life? So what he's actually here confronting is, look, you don't use metaphors too literally. Um, You don't use metaphors too literally. And then he goes on in, in a really an allusion to his universalist, expectation that he's going to see God everywhere. He said to him, we reply that we don't consider being a Chaldean a virtue or a vice. Nor is anyone exiled from the life of virtue by living in Egypt or spending his life in Babylon. So he could expect to find virtue in the Egyptians in the Babylonians nor again has God been known to the esteemed individuals in Judea only nor is Zion as people commonly think the divine habitation he He really is universalizing the presence of God throughout the whole created order, expecting to find a fund of examples that we can, um, we can mine the examples by a metaphorical reading of them. Anyway, I just thought it was such gorgeous prose and I did want to give you a taste of Gregory's use. Well, if we finish and said, okay, Tony, um, all well and good, if What if you wandered into this passage and began to try to sense some kind of allegorical, uh, Christological reading in it. Now in so doing, in so doing, what you're actually doing is you're uh, looking over the shoulders of the guys on the road to Emmaus when the the risen Christ opened up the, the, the scriptures and beginning at Moses and all the prophets he explained the things concerning himself. And elsewhere, he said about the scriptures, they are they which testify of me. So in expecting to find Christolo- uh, you know, Christological uh, pregnancies, as it were, in a text, um, we're not really uh, going far from the Emmaus Road. Um, and And my suggestion is that from time to time, it's just worthwhile putting a Christological lens across these passages and seeing how it works. Now, in this particular case, um, what we're looking at in Jeremiah 17 is a kind of a, you know, what is man? What is man? And what seems to be behind verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, which are, you know, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's he's like a shrub in the desert. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and doesn't fear when heat comes. Its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. At one level, you could say, oh, this is two classes of humanity, and it's kind of like... um, you know, the heading of chapters on some kind of codes of behavior. And yes, true. But what if actually this was universalized somewhat? And that God is actually searching for the the trusting man or the trusting human being. In fact, verse 10 says that after the verse 9, what verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So you have a searching God. And you could say, oh, he's searching for judgment, which is how it's normally read. No, no what, what if he's searching because he needs an image of God? What if the searching is he's searching for the man who will trust him? And of course, he does find um, glimpses of that in the Old Testament. I mean, Jeremiah was one. But what if those glimpses are actually unfulfilled and they're fulfilled in Christ. Um, God is searching for the true heart that he can do business with. Because this true heart will open him up to acting on the earth. So, and that true heart was achieved fully in Christ now that reading blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord is fulfilled in Christ he is the ultimate picture of that blessed human being whose trust is the Lord and as a result of that what's the result of that he's enormously fruitful he has roots and he has fruit that remains green and never ceases to bear fruit. Well, this picture is in a minor way true of good people when they do good things. Definitely so, but it's fragile. It's true massively and secured in Jesus Christ, who bore fruit eternity. So we'd say that verse eight climaxed in Christ, which is the human being, the human being, shaped and defined by the knowledge of God. And then this text goes further, and it doesn't stop there. It's, 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 it's got God searching the heart. And then the second part, which is verses 11 to 13, is the kind of social outworking of that good heart. Um, there's a very strong intimation that the, this good person will create a good society. It begins with a bad person in verse 11, like the partridge that gathers a brood she did not hatch. So is he who gets riches, but not by justice. Remember, God is searching for the good heart to give everyone according to the fruit of his deeds. And normally this searching is read as a judgment of humanity. But what if the idea of the searching is to find one true man who can now inaugurate fruitfulness for all? Um, and that's what happens in verse 12 a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary so the glorious throne is in fact an intimation i mean at one level at one level yes jeremiah is talking about the temple and its radiance in society he's talking in um sad terms because it's going to be destroyed in hopeful terms that it will be rebuilt. I'm sure if you interviewed Jeremiah, that was his main focus behind the glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary that would be it. But really the Holy Spirit writing this through Jeremiah has in view the rule of the entire cosmos. That's what's happening. It's not the, the glorious high throne is the, is the fulfillment of, of Genesis 1, where human beings govern the cosmos. And we know that that was what was grasped and achieved on our behalf in Christ. Um, the phrase that it's set on high from the beginning is an, is an allusion back to the fact that this rule was inaugurated at creation. And... The the place of our sanctuary becomes the throne. So the idea of this fusion between the presence of God, which is what the temple was about, and the rule of God are fused. And the presence of God on the earth was revealed and achieved and secured in Jesus Christ. God himself, God himself, he secured the presence of God on the earth and in securing the presence of God i.e., the temple, he then inaugurated the rule of God on the earth. Um, and so the, this picture of um, the search for the good man, the idea of the good man inaugurating the rule of God on the earth. Um, if read at too low a level, is just God, you know, checking out the millions and billions of people who've lived on the earth to see what their scorecard is on the good, bad thing. That's, that's a pretty forensic, auditory, mean minded, mini minded view of God versus God searching for the one true man one true man one true human being who's going to inaugurate the rule of god so if you read this passage as it were quote allegorically and said well actually actually it's glimpsing towards the incarnation um, you'd be getting pretty close to its ultimate truth um, that was only it. only ever true in, it was only ever true fully in christ that someone trusted god um, and and you know then even reading the, the the next verses which are fourteen to eighteen which is Jeremiah praying for deliverance he's saying heal me O Lord I shall be healed save me and I shall be saved you are my praise uh, I haven't run away from being your shepherd nor have I desired the day of sickness um, uh, this really could almost be read as a prayer of Christ on the cross um, as we do with Psalm twenty two. So um, that's an example of a reading um, of, of an Old Testament prophetic passage that lists to what the patristics would have called the spiritual level. By that they meant the Christ-revealing level. Um, I think it's really, really powerful because you can do it quite deliberately. You know, as you're thinking about a passage, you can deliberately see if um, you're seeing something in there of the pregnant possibility of Christ. Um, Importantly, just to conclude this, it's in the nature of a metaphor that um, I I would not say this reading is right or wrong. It's suggestive. It's what I made of it. Someone might make something else of it. Um, So the, the metaphorical reading contrasts with the propositional reading where there's debate over the exact intention of the author, the exact time of its writing, you know, it's really, it's really forensic, but in behind the forensic inquiry, there's the assumption that there's a right and wrong answer. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, I think that's got to go on. And I think, I think uh, Christian academics have needed to engage in that to defend the scriptures and they've done it really well. However, um, what I'm advocating here is a multi-perspectival reading that where the, the most powerful part of Scripture is the revelation of Christ. And as you can see from the way I've read it, it's a revelation of the redemptive Christ, not the judgment morality of God. So I hope you enjoyed, uh, enjoyed this uh, little meditation. And... Um, Uh, We've spent a long time on Jeremiah. We'll uh, probably move on now to one of the other books that Anne and I, I mean, Anne and I went beyond Jeremiah, obviously, uh, but there's so much there. Um, And um, I think it's been a really important series because uh, he so often carries the burden or the, the, the sort of brand of the angry prophet of doom and judgment. But I think what we've seen is something very, very different to that.